1: Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 99. This is a little bit of a different episode. Uh, I had a whole episode prepared, but the way the production schedule now works for Queerology is that episodes are completed like a full two weeks before they go live. And, and so it didn't even begin to address the reality that we're now living in. This past weekend, uh, as I witnessed the protests in response to the state-sanctioned murder and lynching of George Floyd, uh, the protests in response to the state-sanctioned murders and lynchings of countless black and brown people, including Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and now David Mikati, who was shot by police during the protests in Louisville, and many, many others. As I witnessed these protests this weekend, I knew that Queerology couldn't proceed as if it were just another week. So, this is an attempt at doing something. Um, I've gathered excerpts from many different past episodes and put them together to create this new episode focused on justice and liberation. I'm so grateful for Darren Calhoun, Britt Barron, Kenji Karamitsu, Robin Henderson-Espinoza, and Broderick Greer for agreeing to let me pull excerpts from their episodes. And I'm, I'm also continually grateful for the work that Robin D'Angelo did way back in episode three, which I also pulled from. Uh, and I'll say more about these folks as, as they come up uh, later on in the episode. So before we dive in, a few points first, uh, this episode is primarily for my white listeners. I found this weekend over and over again, I really want to offer care and rest to my black and brown listeners through this medium. And I also realize that I'm not the most equipped uh, and not exactly in the position to be able to do that. So I, I think, and I may be wrong on this, but I think that my ability and my responsibility rest kind of squarely in this space of speaking to my audience. So if you're not white, and if you're looking for care, I've included some links to places you can go for care in the show notes, uh, and these are places that are led by black and brown folks who are more equipped to offer spaces of rest spaces of care to uh, folks of color. The protests that have been happening around the country this weekend and around the world this weekend, they're not just about George Floyd. They're not just about state sanctioned lynching and police murders. Black, brown, Latinx, native, and other people of color have disproportionately been affected by COVID in the last months. They've had higher infection and death rates due to the ways our systems have been set up to fail people of color, and thus they've already been living in trauma. And that's on top of the trauma, they exist within daily simply from not having white skin. So thus, more murders... More lynchings at the hands of the state, at the hands of the police, is heaping incalculable amounts of trauma upon already existing indescribable trauma. There's so much more going on here. So, property can be replaced. Lives cannot. And to kind of back that up, here's, here's actually an excerpt from Nordstrom Corporate. Uh, they, they sent out an email on Monday, so yesterday, uh, kind of addressing some of the things that happened this weekend. They had some stores that were damaged this weekend uh, because of the protests here in Seattle. And they wrote, windows and merchandise can be replaced but we continue to believe, as strongly as ever, that tremendous change is needed to address the issues facing Black people in our country today. Target Corporate released a similar statement. Many independent stores have released similar statements. So I, I hope in the midst of this, we can become people who work to address the actual issues, not damaged property, the actual issues, and people who can work for change. And we can start exactly where we are right now. And the voices in this episode can help point us in the right direction. But after you listen, it's time for you to act. So I want you to commit to listening to this episode. Then after you listen, do something. I'm including tons of resources in the show notes of things you can do, but especially want to encourage you to donate to your local bail funds. That's where money is needed right now. And finally, (laughs) I want to remind you that it's not the job of black and brown folks to educate us white folk. Please, do not reach out to the folks in this episode asking what you can do or asking them to further educate you or elaborate on a point they made. That's your responsibility to figure out. Use the resources I've included. If I hear that you've reached out to one of these folks or any of your black and brown friends for advice, then I'll know that you weren't listening. You have resources right in front of you at your fingertips. So do a little bit of your own work instead of expecting others to do it for you. Even Instagram comments, even Twitter responses. Google, if you want to reach out to someone, reach out to me and I would love to help point you to more resources. You can also just look in the show notes. I want to give a huge thank you to Ana Jelsey Velasco-Sanchez. She's a Washington, D.C.-based activist and consultant who helped guide my thinking around this episode. Because of Queerology's generous patrons, I was able to hire her. And I want to make that a really clear point, especially because of what I just said about not heaping emotional labor on black and brown folks. I was able to hire Ana Jelsey as a consultant for this episode to bounce my own ideas that I came up with off of her. And I'm so grateful that she agreed to help guide me to continue doing my own work. Really grateful for her and for her wisdom. So with all that said, let's go ahead and dive in. (laughs) And to start us out, I thought it'd be really wonderful for us to pray together. Uh, And and this prayer that Kenji's about to read is, is a prayer for justice. And it comes from his book, A Booklet of Uncommon Prayer, which is available online from Evangelicals for Social Action. There's a link for that in the show notes. So here's Kenji reading A Prayer for Justice. This comes from episode 18. And then again, we repeated it in episode 46 of Queerology. Will you pray with us?
2: God, make us instruments of your justice. Where there is a false and untenable peace, let us sow dissent. Where there is injustice, fury. Where there is oppression, hope. Where there is false fluorescence, profound darkness. Where there is social depression, life. Where there is crime and poverty, a sustainable economic infrastructure. Grant that we may not so much seek to be uplifted as to uplift, to be seen as to see others. For it is in protesting the sin of the system that we can more fully acknowledge our own sin. It is in demanding justice of the powerful that we live out God's demands for us. And it is in rejecting the American dream that we are born into God's dream. Amen.
1: Amen, indeed. Okay, now we're going to get into it um to start let's define some things what are we talking about when we mean racism white supremacy whiteness even what are those things there are three guests kind of in this section uh i'm not going to do full introductions because you can go back and listen to their episodes and i encourage you to do so this is kind of just like a primer uh first we have dr robin d'angelo a critical race theorist. Uh, she wrote a recent best-selling book called White Fragility, why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism. Go get that book. And if you want to listen to her episodes of her episode of Queerology, this is from episode three. There was an encore in episode 34. Uh, and there was another encore early in 2019 as well. Uh, next is Darren Calhoun. Uh, he's talking about whiteness and assimilation. Uh, so you'll hear his voice next. Darren is a justice activist, uh, speaker, musician, photographer, and conversation starter based in Chicago. And this first appeared in episode 22. Uh, Worshipping While Queer. So if you want to hear more of Darren, which I encourage you listening to, next you will hear Britt Barron. Uh, Britt Barron is a speaker, a teacher, and author of her forthcoming book. It's coming out in just like a month called Worth It. We're actually going to be doing a whole episode about that book later uh, this summer. Uh, So excited about that. Um, but this is from episode 27 of Queerology, uh, when Britt was on the podcast with her wife, Sammy, and that too is an amazing episode. So Dr. D'Angelo, Darren Calhoun, and Britt Barron.
3: probably the most brilliant adaptation of racism post-civil rights was to make being a good moral person and complicity with racism mutually exclusive. So you actually, racism became bad and only bad people were racist. And since I was good and I was against racism and I was not aware of any conscious dislike, I could not be racist. And that's, that's what the definition the average white person has. Trust me, it'll come up in the responses to this program, and um, and therefore, if you suggest that anything about me has anything to do with race, um, or that I've done anything racially problematic, I'm going to hear a question to my very moral character. And then I will need to defend my moral character. And that's why I think actually white progressives are the most difficult. Um, One, we think we're good to go. We're down. We've been exempt from all of this. And that's where our energy is going to go to making sure you understand that we're down (laughs) and good to go. And none of our energy is going to be going to what it needs to go to for the rest of our lives, which is continual self-awareness, reflection, analysis, engagement, interruption, accountability, and so on. Interestingly, where we are in dominant culture, so where we are in the norm, where we are swimming with the current in the water rather than against it. So as queer people, we're swimming against the current. But as white people, we're swimming with the current. And one of the privileges of swimming with the current is that you are not reduced to to that identity. You get to be an individual. Right. And so that becomes something to which you feel entitled. It is a very precious ideology of dominant culture. Now, where you're not swimming with the current, you're always labeled. So you're always going to be the gay guy. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, but not the white guy. Right. And so one of the one of the ways that we get our backs up, and again, as you'll notice in people's white people's responses to what I'm saying, is that I'm challenging individualism. I'm actually not granting white people individuality. I actually am, yes, I want to be really clear to all your listeners, I am proceeding as if I could know something about you just because you are white. And that is because we live in a society together that conditions us together. I doubt any any queer identified person would deny that gender socialization is profound, right? That it, that's what it's all about is this, that binary and how relentless it is. And so perhaps we feel we can say some general things about cisgender people or about heterosexual people and what they're able to take for granted regardless of other aspects, but it's very difficult when we want to apply it to ourselves.
4: I think there's a historical context that really comes into play here, um, especially for people who live in the United States. Um, we tend to think that the world we're born into is the world that always existed, or the way things are are the way that they've always been. And I think, especially in our context, that's not very accurate. Uh, nationalism, or you know, affiliating or identifying with the with the country that you're from, is something that's common, and it's something that's been going on for a long time. And it definitely would would have been the case uh, when Jesus uh, first walked the earth. And so when we see things in the Bible that refer to nationalism, it's in a specific context. Um, But when we look at it today and we try to apply that to the conversation about race in particular, um, there's actually some missing parts there. And so what I'm often hearing when people say, well, why identify with a certain thing Um, is informed by the way whiteness works in the United States. So whiteness is a construct. It's not a nationality. It's not an ethnicity. It's not a culture um, per se in the traditional sense. Um, Whiteness is something that was defined by policy and legal terms that created a class of people or a group of people who had power and ruled over everyone else. People uh, often had to, as immigrants, lose their nationality as well as lose their ethnic identities Um, when they came to this country as immigrants. To hold on to those identities meant to be oppressed, to be other to be an outsider. And so to become American, which also very specifically they were trying to achieve whiteness, uh, they had to lose their accents, they had to lose their culture, they had to use the, lose the special spellings of their names um, and become Americanized or assimilate. And so that creates this value that was taught by um, by parents who were immigrants, taught to their first generation children, and eventually lost by the time you hit the second generation. That there's something special, unique, different about them, and that the best thing you can do is hide your uniqueness or hide what makes you different or or stand out. And so for whiteness, that's a benefit because after a certain point, if you don't have the accent or if you don't Practice certain cultural traditions, you just kind of blend in into white American culture. But for other people, we never have have had that option. No matter how much we Americanize our names, or no matter how much we lose certain accents, people of color tend to stand out as being other um, because of skin tone, um, as well as all kind of other structural things that that maintain the establishment of race. And so, when we get to people in modern times saying, why are you identifying with that? Why are you dividing? Why are you separating yourself out? I think that's informed by the fact that to be normal in America, and I use some air quotes there, to be normal in America, you had to to, uh, askew everything that would have made you different. And to be normal also meant to be Protestant Christian in America. And so um, that becomes like the prevailing identity, the thing that you hold up as a shield is this is the only thing that matters in a system that only benefits people who can blend into that. And what people are usually asking someone to do is just stop standing out as being different. That makes me uncomfortable. But I think what's really going on is that we uh, we have to get back to the place where we realize that we all lose something. In, in that assimilation, that we lose, that that people who are now raced as white lost something to become white. They lost history, they lost language, they lost uh, family connections. In the same way, um, when people are, are upset about me identifying as gay, or when people are upset about how uh, various groups name their oppressions and name certain things that they experience. Um, It's because we're trying to reclaim something and we're actually trying to get back to something where we're a whole person, you know, an intersectional person, not just a single identity label and not just so we can push other people away. It's actually so that our whole stories can be told because we don't want to lose something and ascend into whiteness. We want to be our whole selves.
0: Talk about race in America um, or racism, right? We sort of pick an event that happened, right? You know, so what's the most recent shooting or what's the most recent something, and then we dissect all the reasons this maybe can or cannot be racist, right? Um, And it's sort of taking a, a step back and saying, okay, but really. Um, Can we talk about the fact that this is a nation built on white supremacy? This is a nation um, built on understanding race and racism. And and that's that that's not meaning to say all people of color are angels and all white people are bad. Right. Let's just understand the world that we live in. And then we understand that. Uh, then we can sort of choose to go in a different way. And sort of uh, talking about that in terms of, of Gladwell and 10,000 Hours is looking at um, essentially the time from um, the first, the time the first slaves were brought uh, to the U.S. until Brown versus Board of Education. Um, even though that wasn't necessarily a, a huge turning point for race, that's sort of when segregation was no longer, quote-unquote, legal, right? And in that span of time our country intentionally practiced a few things, right? We intentionally practiced the separation of, of black folks, the dehumanization, the, the the characterizing, the, you know, so many practices just became second nature. And that's sort of what I talk about in the in the TED talk. And what Gladwell talks about is, uh, once you have put 10,000 hours into doing something, you, uh, 70% of that action gets relegated to your subconscious. Um, because you you just do it right, um, you, you know it's it's like athletes. So it's like when you have a day off, but you get in your car and you still start driving to work, you know. Um, and so when we talk about race, just understanding, I think this country has become uh, has put in like 10,000 hour units or something, and so. Um, and we look at the time since Brown versus Board of Education, assuming that's when, you know, we tried to even start doing anything else. That's only been, I think, 63 or, or 62 years. It's uh, that's, that's not, that's not a long time. And so when we, when we enter the con- um, conversation about race, I think it's helpful to just understand uh, a little bit of context outside of some individual nuances. Now, let's just understand the con- uh, context of America Uh, And then we can have a a, hopefully a conversation that's less you did this or I I did this or your family. It's okay, we live in this place that was like really good at being racist for a really long time. There's still some residue and we're treading through that. How do we actively become experts in something else?
1: How do we become experts in something else? This next section, we're going to be hearing from three more people. Uh, one of which you've already heard from, two new people. The first is the Reverend Canon Broderick Greer. Uh, He's Canon Precentor at St. John's Cathedral in Denver, Colorado, uh, doing a lot of coordination and ministry work for folks in their 20s and 30s. This is from episode 48. The next voice you'll hear is Dr. D'Angelo again. And then finally in this section, you will hear from Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza. Uh, Dr. Robin is a trans queer activist, a Latinx scholar, and public theologian who just published a book last year called Activist Theology. I'd encourage you to go pick that up. Dr. Rodman has been on Queerology three times already. This is from their most recent episode, episode 90.
5: Just because something is new to someone doesn't mean that it's new, that it's new. Um, And so that's part of the difficult work of this era is kind of catching some people up to the fact that this is not a new thing. Um, You know, you think about Denmark VC back in the 19th century in Charleston and the way that he, as a minister, if I'm not mistaken, he was an AME minister, African Methodist Episcopal, you know, they staged a revolt um, in the 19th century. Nat Turner you know, staged a revolt. Um, So many different Black people have resisted white supremacy, enslavement, um, and other forms of indignity. From day one, you know, people say, well, no one knew enslavement was wrong in the time of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, on and on. Black people knew. Um, Why else did they jump off of you know, slave ships, why else did they try to escape the labor camps that they were being held on? Uh, they knew that, that, that there was no dignity in the way that they were being commodified and, uh, turned into private property. And so the difficulty of this time is, is not getting just so frustrated I mean, I, I, I kind of live in a neighborhood of frustration emotionally because there are people who are coming to their senses about the presence of black theology and womanist theology and queer theologies and on and on and on and are saying, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. Why weren't you saying anything before? And we're all like, <laughs> you weren't listening. We have been saying this for centuries. Like, this isn't. New, like just because it's new to you isn't doesn't mean it's new to us. And I mean, I even remember being 12 years old and sitting in a pew and at church, it was like a Thursday night, if I'm not mistaken. And it was the day that the Iraq war started. And the moderator of our Baptist District Association stood up and said, You know, war is wrong and we don't support this. And these are Black Baptists who historically aren't necessarily pacifists or, I mean, whatever. I mean, but there was a sense, you know, people would say the whole nation was beating the drum of war. Not everybody. I mean, there were people who were saying this isn't right. Um, But when the priority is destruction and creating kind of a sense that there is a consensus to be destructive, then all of the people who are concerned with life and dignity and respect and peace are ignored. They're not silenced because they're not, they don't stop talking. They don't stop organizing, but they are ignored. Um, and that, that is literally what we have, that, that has been our story this whole time. We've been ignored. Um, And that's what I tell people all the time. Like I, I, because sometimes I have to like check myself and look back on things I've said on Twitter. And I I basically have been saying the same stuff on Twitter since like 2011, but no one cared, which is fine. Like I, I was never saying it because I thought that I would like build a platform or an audience. Like I was saying it because I felt like it was right, and that's how so many people have existed in the world. Like we know, like we're not going to be noticed we're not going to be famous, we're not going to have a huge platform, but we quietly do and try to act and try to live in a way that is consistent with Christ, you know, to use evangelical language, Christ being the center of our lives. And what are those ethical and moral implications for that? Um, Even when no one's watching, we're still baptized, even when no one is watching. And so, um, that That is the task at hand in the church, in the academy, in theology is, you know, people not getting too ahead of themselves and saying, this is great that you're just now saying this. Um, it's a matter of having some humility and saying, wow, I didn't listen to you. You were right the whole time.
3: open our eyes is relentlessly giving us messages that we are inherently superior, um, that we are basically the norm for humanity. And again, I'm hoping that your listeners can understand that maleness is the norm for human, androcentrism, right? And and anything else is a deviation from that. Um, Heterosexuality is the norm for human and everything else is a less than deviation from that. And whiteness is the norm for human. And in my workshops, um, my goal is to make that visible. So there's a question that I ask in my sessions and um, there's a series, but one of them is, what are some of the ways in which your race has shaped your life or races if you're multiracial? Most white people answer that question, they pair up, and they begin to tell a story of their first cross-racial experience. So you can kind of imagine that, right? So you and I paired up, and I say, well, you know, when I was five, I had this little friend. I didn't even notice she was black. Um, And then one day, my dad said this thing, right? Mm. I mean, can you imagine that's kind of how we – Oh, absolutely. gosh, just the other day, or – What we tend to do in answer to the question, what are some of the ways in which your race has shaped your life? Tell about a cross-racial experience. I want you to notice that's not answering the question. That's not the question. (laughs) Uh, That cross-racial experience that I may have had at five is not how race has shaped my life, okay? But what it reveals is how deeply we define race as what's happening when they are present. And if they are not present, Race is not happening. When I go to dinner in Ballard tonight, I'm gonna think race isn't happening unless a black man walks into the restaurant and now race is happening, right? Uh, no, it it's teeming with race. Uh, it's just it's just the water, right? The way we should be answering that question is, well, even before I was born, the forces of race were operating on me and shaping the trajectory of my future life. So, what transportation, education, nutrition was available to my mother, Uh, what environmental safety did she carry me in, where did she deliver me, who delivered me, how was she treated, Uh, who owned the hospital I was delivered in, and who came in that night and mopped the floor and took out the garbage. I was born into a racial hierarchy. And in the same way, I used to be a childbirth educator, and I can't tell you how many couples would come in and say, Oh, we had an ultrasound. And I'd say, Why? Was there an indication of a problem? Oh, no. You know why they had an ultrasound? They want to know the sex of the baby. Why? So they can prepare, right? That even before that child is born, the forces of gender are operating on it. And even if you have progressive parents who are like, We're not going to do that. We're going with yellow, not blue or pink. Good luck fighting off your friends and family. Good luck fighting off the television and the Happy Meal toy and Target toy aisles. Good luck, right? We, we understand that it's relentless. And so is whiteness.
6: Activist theology is, is what we're trying to do on the porch with iced tea. It's what we're trying to do in the streets with with our banners and with our marches. We're we're not trying to replicate empire religion, which I believe is complicit with white supremacy and supremacy culture writ large. So that would be capitalism. That would be militarism, patriarchy. You know what, the three prongs of empire. So I'm trying. I'm trying to. I'm trying to call it out there in that sentence. If I can recall the people who have come before me and in particular liberation theologians who woke up to the inhumanity of the poor in Latin America and realized that the church was doing nothing for the poor. I'm trying to write in that tradition and I'm trying to help us all wake up to the inhumanity that is a result of supremacy culture and that we are silent to the oppression of women, that we are silent to the oppression of LGBTQ plus folks, that we are silent to so many oppressions, to the killing of trans women of color, to the killing of black and brown men. We need to wake up to this inhumanity and we need to live differently. And that's that's really that's really why I, I felt like I needed to write the book because the the ways in which black and brown men in particular and trans women of color were being killed by toxic white masculinity, I woke up to the inhumanity, and I woke up to my own story, and my mother still faces racism, and so I'm still waking up to the inhumanity of racism, and this is this is about waking up, and this is about becoming clearer with who we want to be in the world, what kind of human we want to be.
1: of humans do we want to be? I hope you're starting to get a picture of things here. I hope some of this information is new. I hope some of it is stuff that you've heard before. This next section, we have more teaching from both Reverend Broderick and Dr. D'Angelo. This section is kind of about what keeps us from speaking up. This is from two different perspectives. From Broderick's perspective, which he's talking about from a marginalized perspective, and Dr. D'Angelo's perspective, which is from a white perspective, hear the language of shame in both of these
5: and when people are saying you're only a failure you can like say i'm that's not true like that that's not true i'm not just a failure like yes i've made mistakes Yes, I fell at times, but that is not the whole story. And so that, you know, I think that that is the motivating factor for so much of what kind of liberation, how liberation movements have um have operated, at least in recent history, where women who are like extremely intelligent and also women who are like normally intelligent, like just just barely into like whatever. Like know that they're capable of working and running things and being CEOs and voting. And like when people say, Oh, women shouldn't be able to vote, you know, I just saw, I think it was Newsweek released a poll that said 60% of Republicans say they don't they do not want to see a woman as president in their lifetime. And yet you have women who say that 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 okay, well, whatever, like I'm still going to run for president. I'm still going to make this work because I know that I'm qualified. And gay people, you know, throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s, specifically in the 80s, when the AIDS pandemic was ravaging urban gay communities um, and people were saying, I am entitled to health care. Like the press secretary, the president's press secretary should address this. Uh, the president should address this. I am worthy of dignity. Um, yes, I make mistakes. But yes, I am like a complex human being. And so all of these people, I think, throughout history, Black people, LGBT people, women, Black LGBT women, um, have come to these realizations and probably are born with the reality that I am deserving of more. And I'm going to fight until I get what I deserve. Even when people define us by mistakes or define us or project, you know, and, and this is unfortunately what ends up happening is all of the greatest fears that people have, specifically straight white people have, unfortunately, about their own capability to be inhumane. They then project it onto us and scapegoat us. And so we have, we have this capacity. And even oppressive people have the capacity too. And I, I put myself in that category. Um, all of us have the capacity to say, Oh my goodness, I am profoundly in need of help. And I have made profound, I've made profound failures in my life. I've made huge mistakes and I'm loved. And, you know, I think it's Brene Brown who says, um, guilt says i made a mistake shame says i am a mistake so it's really having that healthy distinction that i'm not i'm not a mistake like yes i make mistakes they may be profound but i am i am my person i am not a mistake
3: oppressed right because I was raised female, Catholic, and poor. So what are the messages of those three identities? Be silent, be subservient, suffer, martyr, invisible, disappear, do not use your voice, do not question authority, right? Those those are deep messages I got as a little Catholic girl. Uh, now those those messages set me up beautifully to collude with racism because they're going to keep me silent they're going to keep me from avoiding conflict they keep they have kept me in my life very focused on my outrage about those things right my my in sense of injustice about patriarchy and sexism you know and classism and i could tell you so much about how those things work, but never, ever had I examined whiteness or or my ability status or right any of those things. Um, and so what I've come to realize is I, I'm not less racist because I was raised in any of those ways. I learned my racial position differently than a white middle-class female learned hers, but I still learned it. Um, and you sit, I've sat there in those faculty meetings where, you know, it's almost all white always, and we're discussing something. And and it's so clear to me that there's, there's racism in how we're discussing it or the impact of, of the decisions we're going to make is, uh, you know, and that there's, there's a whole perspective missing, right? And yet I feel really intellectually inferior often in academia, right? Based on my internalized sexism and my internalized classism. So I sit in those meetings in silence, even though I'm noticing racism and I'm feeling unsettled about it. And my silence really is coming from a place of inferiority, right? It's not coming from a place of superiority. And yet I had to step outside myself and ask, well, how is it functioning? How is your silence right now functioning in this room? Oh my God, (laughs) you're colluding with racism. You're maintaining white solidarity. You're gonna look like a team player and you're gonna get ahead precisely because you're not challenging racism. And and that is not acceptable.
1: I think that question that Dr. D'Angelo asks, how is this functioning, is one of the single most important questions, at least for me, that I've learned, that I can ask. It's a filter (laughs) to kind of filter through everything how is my silence functioning, or how is this action functioning, is so important. We just have a little bit more teaching from Dr. D'Angelo left in this episode. And right before she starts talking about this in the episode, I share a reflection of kind of my first experience being taught a lot of this stuff in, in a class in grad school and how it felt like I was waking up to this, this reality that was so sickening. I thought about trying to cut this section down cut parts out of it, but everything that she has to say in this chunk is so important for today that I think we need to listen to all of it.
3: Even the few white people who grow up, say, urban poverty, and they grow up in neighborhoods where they are around people of color... Outside of that, the whiter culture is still relentless. They still know that they're white and that they can leave, and when they leave, they'll be in a better situation, right? So I grew up in poverty, but I knew that if I was going to have an upwardly mobile life, I wasn't going to be – I'd end up in white space, which I have, right? So we grow up in this insular, rarely ever challenged, deep internalized superiority. I'm sorry. You cannot (laughs) – Miss the message of white superiority and it is, it is not uh, conscious necessarily, but it is, it is deep and relentless. And so, so all of these, and then, and then this obliviousness and at the same time, we're taught not to see or know it, but let's face it, we don't really want to see or know it because it could require something of us or it could challenge our identities as good people. Um, and it's so at the same time that, that, like you might say, right, you're telling me this example of when you were in that class, you really were oblivious, right? There is this really, this actual, oh, my God. And on some level, you always knew it was better to be white. Totally. Didn't you? Oh, yes. Yeah, so I, I always knew. We know. Right. And we also know that white people talk racist talk to each other yes any white person who came up to me and said i've never in my entire life heard a racist comment or joke i would just say you're lying i'm yeah, sorry it's not true okay so we we in both these things it's a both end <laughs> we don't know and we do know but can't admit to it all this and then individualism and then arrogance and then ignorance and then insulation it makes us really irrational and and misinformed um and so you challenge me, right? And it's going to throw me so off of my racial equilibrium, right? 24-7, I am comfortable as a white person in this society, 24-7. It is rare for me to be uncomfortable. So you make me uncomfortable racially, and I'm going to lose it, right? Some, you know, cognitive dissonance, you know, just panic, anxiety, and I I need that to stop. I need to get back onto my equilibrium and I need, I will do whatever it takes uh, to back you off of me. Okay. If I need to cry, so everybody rallies around me and then the person who gave me the feedback now becomes bad and I, I'm, you know, get all the resources back to me. I'll cry. If I need to get, you know, indignant, you know, um, I'll get indignant, right? If I need to shut down and go silent and then withdraw, I'll do it. Pretty much anything but engage with humility, okay? <laughs> for I mean, for all the reasons I've just said, you can get to a place where you're able to engage with humility, but it does take some work, right? We're not we're not socialized that that would be a natural response for us, okay? And so. While it's fragile and weak in the sense that I can't tolerate it, it's actually incredibly powerful in its impact and effectiveness to police people of color back into place. So I think my inability to handle it, my white fragility, actually functions as a form of bullying. I'm going to make it so miserable for a person of color to call me in on racism that they just won't do it. Trust me, people of color suck up microaggressions constantly and just don't bother. And why don't they bother? Because it's too hard, because they're exhausted, because they need to get through the day. Uh, And so it's really powerful. And I think I've been thinking about it lately as I'm not the 1%. (laughs) I'm not the 1%. But man, I can, I can control people of color through my white fragility, right? In my place, in my relationships, I can keep people of color in their place uh, through through that. And so, when you're in these spaces, and people of color maybe think, okay, these people they experience a form of oppression, they're gonna get this, and they take a risk. And then we counter with defensiveness or, oh, yeah, 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 yeah I already know that. Um, it, it just it just shuts them down. Yeah. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as white people who are trying to do better, <laughs> um, I think a lot of times you will realize a few things about ourselves and say, OK, now I'm not racist anymore because I know these things. I'm an ally. And then we enter spaces. Um, And I think a lot of times that also causes more harm than good also.
3: Well, the moment you think you're not racist anymore, you don't understand racism. Um, Because racism is not an either or proposition. It's not um, dependent on your self-image. It's not dependent on your friendships. Um, It is a system that we are immersed in and that we navigate 24/7, and again, in the same way that I am not now free of gender. Do you know what I mean? I might say I I I refuse to identify. I'm um, non-binary, but everything is always in relation to the relentless reality of having to navigate the gender construct. Right? No one, I don't believe, would say I am free of all gender conditioning, all gender navigation. And certainly not a cisgender person. So let's go there, right? Because if we're talking white, you're now talking about a cisgender person telling you, "I am free of all gender impact." And would that be just? Uh, imp- is it clear that that's impossible? So that's the first thing that's happening. You just don't understand racism if you think that. You you will never be free. I will never be free. Uh, I've committed my life. I do less harm. I'm more conscious. I've built relationships, and there are some people of color who consider me to be a supportive person. And I step in it all the time. And um, probably the difference is I step in it a little less. I'm I'm rarely defensive about it anymore, and I have really good skills at repairing it when I step in it. And that's what we can go for. Um, but in my lifetime, it's not going to end, and I'm not going to be free. Okay, one. Two, I do not call myself an ally, and I do not even call myself an anti-racist white. I say that I'm involved in anti-racist work, um, but the reason I don't self-appoint myself as an ally is because I'm the least qualified to make that determination. I, I'm, I'm invested in not seeing racism. In, in, on, and, and put it another way, I'm invested in racism. How would I not be invested in racism? I am. Oh, my God, it works so well for me. I mean, the psychic freedom uh, that I don't – that I have, right? All of it. Um, Now, I don't want those investments, and I committed to challenging them, but they're deep and they're wily, and I am not to be trusted. And the question, again, I think white people have to ask ourselves is how do you know? How do you know? Are are you in a relationship with people of color? Do you talk about racism? If you don't, why not? Do you think maybe (laughs) – I would offer for your consideration that you have indicated that you're actually not open. And so they're not talking to you about racism, and therefore the relationship's probably not as close as you think it is. right? Um, so um, w- while I don't call myself an ally, that is because it is for people of color to decide if in any given moment I'm behaving in allied ways. So notice a few key things. In any given moment, how am I doing? I'm not, you know, I marched in the 60s, so now I'm certified as free of racism for the rest of my life, right? But since I said that, let's look at that for a minute. This is often the evidence. I marched in the 60s. And therefore, I had, you know, and I, I often facetiously say, "Damn, I wished I had marched in the '60s." <laughs> so then I would be certified as racist-free for the rest of my life, even though we didn't even know race wasn't biological in the '60s. I'd still be certified as free of racism forever and ever. Do you see that? Do you think maybe yes? People who marched in the '60s were not fire hose racists. They weren't the KKK. They were against those forms of racism. Do you think maybe they were running some other subtle, martyr white savior, arrogant, patronizing racism as they took over the movement, right? Um, so it's an ongoing process um, that is ultimately determined by peoples of color uh, in any given moment. And, and, and that also reminds me, one, that it has to be demonstrated uh, and two, that I need to always be coming from a place of humility, not arrogance, not ever already knowing. So let me just give you a heads up to, your, to any listeners who may need this heads up. When we say I was taught to treat everyone the same, trust me, people of color do not think, oh, this is a down white person. They're rolling their eyes, okay? When we say I'm an ally, Well, maybe a way to put it is, when a man says to me, I'm a feminist, the bubble over my head is, I will be the judge of that.
1: Sure makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? We're nearing the end of our time together, and I want to end us with some words from Reverend Broderick In this part of his episode, he's talking a little bit about the long arc of justice and about how, for him, the work that he does is not specifically for us white people. And I think that's a call to us. It's a call to us to do our own work in the places where we need to do it. So I'm going to end this episode with that end with these words and hear them as a call to go out to do your work and to act as a reminder there's a ton of resources in the show notes for this episode choose something and do it thanks so much for listening and here's reverend broderick
5: Well, and I think about um, the number of people I know who are black and in their 60s, actually, who are a part of these class action lawsuits against the federal government because of treatment by officials in their various capacities and in their employment in the 1980s and 90s and early 2000s. And it's like these people have been in these class action lawsuits some of them since the early 1990s and one since like 1993 25 years almost my whole lifetime and are saying i i'm going to like i may die before you know a decision's made on this case but like i'm still going to file the case like i'm still going to make you know stake my claim in this um and that's courage you know knowing that The outcome may outlive me, but I'm still willing to assert my humanity and my dignity and show up and say, I deserve better. I deserve better. Now, the issue, I mean, and people will say, I mean, I can hear them, you know, oh, well, that's so self-centered. Yeah, it's self-centered if you are at the top of the feeding chain and you still think that you're entitled to even more. At the cost of everyone else. These are people saying, I'm at the bottom. I have been on the receiving end of violence upon violence. And I don't deserve to live in violence. Economically, socially, politically, religiously, familially, <laughs> in my own uh, relationships or marriage. I don't, I don't deserve this. Um, it's not, I'm I, this is not a framework for people who are at the top. Um, but that's, the Apple Care woman on Vine, you know, she's at the top and she wants more. That's this current president. He's at the top and isn't done. Um, this endless kind of consumption and um, hyper confidence about what one is entitled to is destructive. Showing up on a continent and saying God is giving us this continent. This is a new world. Um. That's wicked. That is evil. That is um, unrestrained capitalism and imperialism and colonialism um, at the cost of far too many lives. So this kind of self-referen- self-referential, self um, self-compassionate, you know, whatever sort of framework is for marginalized people. I'm not doing this for people at the top of the food chain. This this is about people at the bottom, people like myself, people who I love in my own life um, who are just trying to make it, make ends meet, make sense of their lives, um, who have the courage to just get out of bed in the morning, even though they know that they're, you know, going to a low wage job. Um, people who have never known people who have worked their whole lives and have never had a career. I know many, I mean, that's every person I grew up around. Almost no one had a career, but they worked their whole lives. So, um, yeah, this isn't for suburban folks. Somebody else can do their theology.